I want to welcome everyone to tonight's class, um, our continuing study of the book of Revelation. Tonight we're going to be in Revelation chapter number 10, and we're going to be looking at the great announcement that's going to be taking place here. This is actually a, this piece of the study is actually going to continue for a few weeks because there's so much that's taking place in this, uh, so much that we need to look at, and it's all one continuous uh, piece, one continuous thought throughout this. So uh, we're going to start tonight in Revelation chapter number 10, if you guys want to turn there with me. Just to give you a little bit of background as to what's going on, we've already seen several of the trumpets uh, sound. Six of the trumpets actually have been blasted across the face of the earth, and with each one of those trumpets that's been blasted, we've seen a different judgment come. We've seen um, industry and commerce affected. We've seen um, uh, natural disasters like we've never seen before in the world. We've seen uh, uh, astronomical occurrences taking place. Uh, we've seen these things over and over throughout each one of these. It's been a different type of event. We've seen demons unleashed upon the earth, locusts, herds of locust type demons uh, released upon the earth. And we've seen army of demons released upon the earth. And, and throughout each one of these, the world and the inhabitants of the world has the opportunity to repent. But we see that that is very limited that any of that takes place at this time. The world continues to rebel against God. This should not necessarily give us hope, but give us understanding and clarity. As we share the gospel with people in this world, we get frustrated sometimes when it's rejected. But understand, if, if people won't accept Christ as their Savior when these unsurmountable events are taking place, when these things, these horrific judgments are being poured out upon them, where they cannot deny the existence of God and cannot deny the fact that God's wrath is being poured out and that they are in opposition to an almighty God and they still won't repent. It kind of makes sense why the heart of men is so hardened today and how easy it is for them just to dismiss things of God today. They claim that they can't see God today, but we know that's a lie because God is planted in the, in the hearts of every person. They know that God is real, but it's easy to ignore him. During this time when these judgments are being poured out upon the earth, God cannot be ignored anymore. There is no way that they can say that they don't know that there is a God, but yet they continue to reject him. Let's go ahead and jump into our study tonight. Revelation chapter number 10, verses 1 through 4, we'll start with. And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was as it were the sun and his feet as pillars of fire and he had in his hand a little book open and he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot upon the earth and cried with a loud voice as when the lion roareth and when he had cried seven thunders uttered their voices and when the seven thunders had uttered their voices i was about to write and I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered and write them not. So we see this angel, this messenger come down. We see that he's not like anything that we've seen so far. He comes down from heaven to, to share this message that comes directly from the throne room of God. He's coming directly from God, an announcement straight from the throne of God itself. We get a description of this, as, and again, as, as best that John is able to describe. Remember, he's trying to describe the undescribable. He's trying to put into words what can't really be put into words. He's trying to take heavenly visions 
visions beyond his comprehension and, and bring them into a, a limited vocabulary, limited by this earth, and describe them. It says he was clothed with a, with a cloud symbolizing his majesty. Most of the things that John is talking about here we're going to see are actually symbolic things, but they each mean something. This clothed with a cloud, it symbolizes his majesty, his glorious and, and heavenly appearance. This is obviously something that was, that was different than John had ever seen before, and he was only able to describe it in the way that he could. It says he had a rainbow upon his head. Rainbows have been used in, were used in the, in the Bible to symbolize God's mercy and his glory. The fact that he has power over all things. Now the, the rainbow is one of those things that's been somewhat hijacked by our, by our culture today. It's been taken something that was meant to be an image of God's mercy upon the earth. And back in the day of Noah, he gave him this sign as a sign, the, the rainbow in the sky, that he wouldn't destroy the world again by flood. And so we see that now today our culture has taken that rainbow, something that was meant to be a, a symbol of God's love and mercy towards the world and used, using it for something evil. But notice even in that context, it's not the same rainbow. Have you ever noticed the, the colors on the rainbow that's used by the, uh, by the left? They've left off one. They actually combined two. Um, I remember working in retail and, and whenever we came time to uh, put clothing in order, we would always do it in order of the rainbow. And there was a little, um, little trick that we used. We used a name called Roy G. Biv. Roy is red, orange, yellow, G is green and biv biv is blue indigo and violet well if you look at the pride flag they use today they they don't use the indigo and violet they just have a purple there and they combine those two even though they're separate colors so even that they've changed somewhat because the i think the the true rainbow is still an affront to them it's still an offense to them so it's been changed somewhat although i have seen and i saw some homework that was uh somebody had posted online and it was supposedly supposed to be the, the rainbow of God, but yet they were using the, the, the limited rainbow, um, not the true rainbow, but the rainbow of the left. Anyways, this messenger had a rainbow upon his head, and it symbolizes the glory and the mercy of God. This is going to be a message of glory. This is going to be a message of mercy. The messenger had a face that shone as the sun, symbolizing the light and luster, the brilliance of God himself. This, this messenger has come from the presence of God, and, and just as, as, as humans, as our, our faces glow when we get in the presence of God, this, this angel, this messenger's um, face is also glowing. It's a message of, uh, that's going to be carried, that's going to be a message of enormous light, a message of enormous luster. said so the messenger had feet as pillars of fire. Fire has been used throughout the word of God to demonstrate holiness and purity talks about being purified by fire. It's a symbol of his righteousness, and it's also a symbol of the strength of the messenger. This great announcement that the messenger was going to be sharing um, was a message of God's holiness, his purity, his righteousness to the earth. Then he says he holds, holds a little book, and the little book is open. But a lot of speculation upon what this little book is, but it's the word of God. It doesn't matter what it says. The fact that it came from the throne room of God, it tells us that this is the word of God that's in here. The message, the word of God, the Holy Scriptures is a message of love and of grace and of judgment and of the woe of God. 
the particular announcement of this messenger was to be a message of God's word, not something that was taken secondhand or thirdhand, but, but directly as God's word. It says the messenger set his feet upon the sea and upon the earth. This symbolizes the gigantic size and the authority that this messenger carries with him. He is humongous. He's claiming both the sea and the land for God. The whole world, in essence, he's claiming the entire universe. Everything that we know is being claimed by him. Um, old explorers of old, you know, they would claim whenever they placed their feet on something, it was they would claim it for whatever nation they were representing. And by him placing his feet upon the the oceans and the seas and placing his feet upon the land, he's claiming this as God's. You know, this world is oftentimes we think that God has just kind of turned his back on it and that he doesn't really care about this world anymore. And, and Time Magazine did an expose about that, that God was dead and he didn't care about the, and if he was alive, he obviously didn't care about the earth anymore. But this is showing us that God does care about the earth and God does have a plan for the earth, that this is God's earth. This isn't Satan's dominion. This isn't even our dominion. This belongs to God. That's why sometimes people get, get um, they get confused. I don't, I don't know if confused is the right word here, but, but they start to take things and say, well, how can you, how can you have anything to do with that? Um, Halloween is a great example. They'll say, well, October 31st, you know, we're, we're selling pumpkins at the church. How can you have anything to do with Halloween? Well, just because we're selling pumpkins doesn't mean we have anything to do with Halloween. It, it, Halloween is, is a, um, a satanic festival. Its origins are, I don't think too many people um, of the masses, I don't think too many of the masses celebrated as a, as a pagan festival anymore. I know there are some that do and some that, that um, look forward to that day for that reason. But for most people, it has nothing to do with that. And people will say, well, that, you know, that you shouldn't do anything, have anything to do with October 31st, because that's Satan's day, or that's the witch's day. And I have to remind them, no, that was the Lord's day first. Just because somebody tries to hijack something of God doesn't automatically mean that God doesn't still have control over it, and that it's not uh, uh, owned by God. October 31st, just like October 30th, is God's day, and it's owned by God. And we see that those things happening to where people and, 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 and the Baptist faith is, is horrible about this, where we will take something. If, if Satan lays claim to something, then we completely ignore it and pretend like it wasn't ever a blessing from God because, you know, Satan claimed it. And it's like once Satan claims something, then then it, it doesn't belong to God anymore. And nothing is further from the truth. Satan lays claim to nothing because Satan creates nothing. Everything was created by God and for God not by, by Satan. So, uh, you know, you think back to the piano, we, you know, we have pianos in our churches, but when pianos were first put in the churches, uh, you know, the, the, it, it caused division. It caused a lot of problems because the only places that had pianos at the time were, were uh, music halls and saloons. And so to take a, a piano out of a saloon and put it into a church, that was, that was blasphemy. And, you know, how silly is that? God gave us an instrument. It's actually a piano is nothing but a harp with keys and God gave us this, this instrument and to say that it can only be used for Satan? How ridiculous is that? And so, you know, here he's, he's proclaiming the fact that even though Satan may have said this is his world, and many of us sometimes believe this is his world because of how evil things are, he places his feet upon this world and claims it and reminds us that this is God's world. God created this earth. God created the heavens. This isn't his. This is God's. The messenger had a voice that roared like a lion. 
we see that roaring like a lion that's symbolic of of the voice of God, the lion of Judah, Christ himself. And this announcement was to be the very message of God himself. This doesn't mean that it's God speaking. This means that the message that he is about to proclaim is God's message, not his own message. The message the messenger called forth uh, seven thundering voices. Now, the number seven, we see that oftentimes in throughout uh, the Bible, but, you know, particularly well, starting in the book of Genesis with the seven days of, of uh, creation or six days of creation, one day of rest, the, the total week there. And we see that the, that number seven means completeness. The, this number seven is some symbolizing that completeness, that fulfillment, this finality of this announcement, that this is the complete announcement. Thunder symbolizing the power and the strength of God's voice. This great announcement of the messenger was to be a, a message of completeness and a message of power. The seven thunders of God's voice have the power to complete and fulfill and finalize all things. We are getting closer and closer to the end, and that's what this pro proclamation is going to be. It is that proclamation of the end. But notice what, what happened when John went to write these things down. He heard what the proclamation was. He went to write them down, and a voice from heaven stopped him from revealing the message of the seven thunders. A voice tells him to seal up whatever it was that the seven thunders had said. The point of this is that that great announcement is to be made to the earth, an announcement so great, so mighty, that the mightiest of messengers is sharing it, and it will be delivered at the time that God has said. It's not something that would come out ahead of time. It's not something that's valuable to us today. If it was valuable to us today, God would have revealed it. This is something that will be valuable and relevant at that time and not a moment before. So speculation, there have been a lot of speculation about who this angel is or who this messenger is. There are those that believe that this is Christ himself. And I've heard that teaching many times because of the of some of the descriptions that are given in, in Revelation 11, the, this angel talks about his two witnesses. But understand that this isn't the angel's message that's coming through. This is God's message. So those, those two um, witnesses that we're, we won't get to today, but we'll get to hopefully next week, those two witnesses, those because this is the message from God, it doesn't mean that they belong to that angel. It means that they belong to God. The reason why I don't believe this is Christ is because when we see the actions of him, what has he already done? He's already placed his feet upon the earth. And I don't believe that Jesus Christ is going to place his feet upon the earth until that day of Armageddon, when he comes back and defeats the armies. When he comes for the rapture, which has already taken place before this, he comes to us in the cloud. There's only one second coming. And that second coming isn't something that's taking place here. That second coming, I believe, is something that takes place at the Battle of Armageddon when he places his feet upon the earth to destroy those that would op 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 oppose him. That placing his feet on the ground is mentioned two times, once in verse number two, and we'll see again once in verse number five. Let's go ahead and read number five, verse number five right now. And the angel, which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth, lifted up his hand to heaven and swear by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and the things therein, are, and the earth, and the things that are that are therein are, and the sea, and the things which are therein, that there should be time no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the, mass, the mystery of God should be finished, 
as he had declared to his servants, the prophets. So we see that it's again talking about this angel and he's swearing unto God. Now, if this was God or if this was Christ, he wouldn't need to swear unto himself. He's, he's swearing unto God. There's a declaration, a great oath that's being placed here. This solemn oath has, has been uh, taken that the great announcement is made. And what is that great announcement? That there will be time will be no more. Now, this means a, a couple things, but mainly what it means is that we're at the end. That there is no more. We've, we've been looking for this date for so long that, that the end of this world would come. And we're at that point now. Everything that's going to be taking place now is just the, the process that takes place to, to fulfill that. There will be no more delay. Today we live in God's long suffering that, that everything is delayed. Everything is waiting until that time. This great angel has come to declare the fact that time is no more, that it's done. Everything is over. We've seen several of the horrors of Revelation up to this point. When they've all happened, a voice and a trumpet has sounded. Now this voice is declaring that this is the end. This is done. When the events of the seventh trumpet have taken place, then the mystery of God will be finalized. The glorious salvation or redemption of the whole universe will have taken place. The positive side to this is the fact that there is hope for the world. God is still in control. We can be optimistic and look forward to this time because this means that the end of, of evil as we know it, the end of, the, of this world is coming close. He's going to create a new heaven. He's going to create a new earth. Peter talked about this in 2 Peter 3, 10 through 13. He said, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heaven shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of person ought you be in all the holy, holy conversations and godliness, looking for and hastening for, unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire will be dissolved and the elements melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heaven and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Look at verse number eight, back in our text in Revelation chapter 10. And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again and saith, go and take the little book, which is, in the, which is open in the hand of the angel, which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. And I went unto the angel and said unto him, give me the little book. And he said unto me, take it and eat it up and it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up. And it was in my mouth sweet as honey. And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. And he said unto me, thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. So we see the what takes place now, John is commanded by the voice in heaven to go and take the little book from the mighty angel. This is the one that told him not to write down what he had heard before, but now he's being told to go take this book. Now remember, this book is God's word, and the, the symbolism here for us is very powerful. You see, God's word is available to us today, just as God's word is available for John then. 
But you notice it's not something that's forced upon John. It's something that is there for John to take. And we have the word of God today. And, but we're not forced to read it. We're not forced to study it. It's not implanted into our mind. We have to make that conscious decision to go and take it and consume it ourselves. Each one of us has to make that decision. We're, we're not robots. God doesn't force his love. And he doesn't force his word upon us. He very, very simply makes it available to us um, to be able to take and to study. God commands us to go and take the word of God, just as he did there. In 2 Timothy 2.15, he says, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. How powerful is that? That we have the ability to go and study the word of God, but nothing is forced upon us. Just like now, John has a decision to make. Now, we know that he's going to make the right decision, because if he didn't, God wouldn't have brought him up there. But we have that same decision. We have the choice whether or not we study the word of God or don't study the word of God. John is commanded to take and eat, consume the little book. He does this when he does the, the message of the book is both sweet and bitter. This is how the word of God is to us today. You see, because the word of God tells us about sin, which is bitter, but it also tells us about forgiveness, which is very sweet. The Bible tells us of death and of life of judgment and salvation. The Bible speaks of heaven and hell. And as sweet as heaven is, hell is bitter. One of the most difficult studies that, that I do is when I when I study on, on hell. Because it's just, it, it's hard for me. It's actually completely beyond me to imagine a place of eternal suffering. A place that is so dark and so horrific and so bitter that it's unpalatable. But the contrast to that is heaven, where everything is perfect, where there is no pain, there's joy, there's peace, there's in the presence of God. We see throughout the, the word of God that it's the same thing. Jesus is showing, or the angel is showing John here, that bitterness of the word of God, but also the sweetness. Ezekiel had a similar situation that I want to share with you real quick before we run out of time. In Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 9 through uh, chapter 3, verse 4, it says, and, and when I looked, behold, a hand was sent unto me, and lo, a roll of a book was therein. And he spread it before me, and it was written within and without. And there was written therein lamentations and mournings and woe. That's the bitter. Moreover, he said unto me, son of man, eat that thou findest, eat this roll, and go speak unto the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat that roll. And he said unto me, Son of man, cause that belly to eat, and fill my, thy bowels with this roll that I give thee. Then did I eat, and it was in my mouth as honey for sweetness. And he said unto me, Son of man, go, get thee unto thy, the house of Israel, and speak with my words unto them. The words of God are pleasant and sweet. The words of men are pleasant and sweet, but they will often lead to, to misery. In Proverbs 16, 24 and 25, it says, pleasant words are as honeycomb, sweet to the soul and health to the bones. There is a way that seemeth right unto man, but the end thereof 
are the ways of death. We need to be careful when we're sharing the word of God that we don't just share the sweetness of the honeycomb. There are many out there, many religions out there, many teachers out there that don't want to deal with the negatives of the word of God. But without the negatives of the word of God, the, the positives don't really, aren't really in effect. If there's nothing for us to move away from, what's the point of moving to? And so we need to understand that in order to better understand heaven, we have to understand hell. In order to understand forgiveness, we need to understand sin. We need to understand the, the, the heaviness of this world in order to understand the joy of God. We need to understand the bondage that we're under if we're ever going to appreciate and understand the freedom that we can have. John is recommissioned here. He is to proclaim the word of God to the whole world. He is to proclaim the bitter as well as the sweet. That is everything that he is seeing here that is positive, but also the, the things that he's seeing here that are negative. He is to proclaim the full message of God's book, the full message of his word. Every minister, everyone who shares the word of God needs to share the full word of God, not picking and choosing, not, um, you know, it's not a cafeteria. We don't have the ability to just set aside certain things because we find them impalatable or we're afraid that they may turn somebody away. You know, it's not our job to make sure that the word of God is palatable. It is our job to share the word of God as God has written it. And there is some bitter in there and there is some sweet in there. And we need to, as ministers and as proclaimers, as, as people who share the gospel, no matter what level it is, whether you share it from a pulpit or you share it one-on-one -on -one in, a, in a, a coffee shop someplace, or you share it at work, we need to understand that it's not our job to pick and choose. We are to share the entire word of God. We are to share everything that came through everything that he shared with us, all those things that were taught to us, we need to teach the world. Much of the problems that we have in this country and much of the problems that we have in this world today is because we've had a generation of pastors, although there were some great ones, don't get me wrong, it's not all. We've had a generation of pastors that tried to water down the word of God, that tried to make it more palatable, to make it more man-centered uh, man instead of God-centered. And we need to get back to making the word of God the word of God. Instead of trying to change the word of God to be more like us, we need to change ourselves to be more like the word of God. That needs to be our goal. And that needs to be the goal when we proclaim it. Every minister, every teacher, every Christian needs to proclaim the sweet and the bitter of God's word, both the grace and the judgment. Ezekiel 2, 7 says, And thou shalt speak my words unto them, whether they will hear or whether they will forbear, for they are the most rebellious. And then later, Ezekiel pens, son of man, I have made thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore, hear the words at my mouth and give them warning from me. A watchman's job is to tell when the bad is coming. A watchman that is afraid to offend and doesn't tell of an approaching enemy is not a, a watchman. He's a traitor. And as Christians, as ambassadors of Christ, it's our job to, to share with the world the news that they don't really want to hear that these things that we see in revelation, these are real and these things are coming. 